Section Zero of The Track of the Typhoon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Alan Dove. The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. Preface. Except in the case of Shaw, who writes a preface and then sticks on a play to justify it, prefaces are usually sort of afterthoughts put in at the beginning. Further than that, I don't know much about them, but after looking over the rather technical beginning of this book, I feel that we need something of the kind to get the reader underway with sufficient impetus to carry him through the doldrums of the first chapter. Furthermore, there are certain things still to be said for which there seems to be no other place, and then, too, most books have prefaces. On a cold, blustery, late November day in 1920, a little black yacht beat her way slowly through the narrows against an ebbing tide and a raw nor'wester, and tied up at St. George, Staten Island. To the casual observer, there was nothing unusual about the event, except possibly the lateness of the season, but to the practiced eye there were signs that spelled something more than a post-season run to the fishing banks. Her storm trysail, her tattered ensign, her decks and rail scoured white, the lifelines strung between her shrouds, all were marks that told of a battle with strong winds and heavy seas. She was the Typhoon, 32 days from the Azores, and in her short career since her launching in July, she had completed a cruise of 7,000-odd miles that had taken her twice across the North Atlantic. It was not long before the reporters and the movie people found her, a horde of inquisitive visitors who came aboard and asked endless questions, or left abruptly when the pitching of the little vessel in the harbor chop proved too much for unaccustomed stomachs. Shades of Stephen Brody, I thought, when I read the harrowing accounts of our cruise the following morning, and I felt myself losing standing as an amateur sailor and skidding into a class with Steve and the immortal who went over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Not that there was any very serious motive behind the cruise of the typhoon. We were not trying to demonstrate anything. We were not conducting an advertising campaign. We hadn't lost a bet. Nor were we subsidized by anybody who had or was. I had the little vessel built according to Atkins and my own ideas of what a seagoing yacht should be, and we sailed her across the Atlantic and back again for the fun of the thing. We feel that the sport of picking your way across great stretches of water by your own newly acquired skill with the sextant, pitting your wits against the big, more or less honest forces of nature, feeling your way with lead line through fog and darkness into strange places which the travelers of trodden paths never experience, chumming with the people of the sea, these things, we believe, are worth the time, the cost, the energy, Yes, and even the risk and hardship that are bound to be a part of such an undertaking. We did it for the fun of the thing, and we believe that no further explanation is necessary. Explaining the cruise of the typhoon on such grounds recalls that delightful situation in Henry Sidner Harrison's novel, Queed, where the absent-minded young philosopher, who has been knocked down in the middle of a crowded crossing by a huge dog, pauses before rising to inquire of the young lady proprietor of the dog, What's the good of a dog like that? What is he for? You will recall that the young lady replies, Why, he's a pleasure dog, a dog to give pleasure to people. Typhoons was a pleasure cruise. How many, I wonder, of the really big expeditions of the past, things that would make the cruise of the typhoon pale into insignificance, 
were inspired by a burning scientific purpose, and how many just from the love of action, the hardship, the fun? Recently I had the pleasure of meeting Captain Robert Bartlett. Do you suppose that Captain Bob was lured to the Arctic by any profound scientific conviction? Do you think that Theodore Roosevelt was driven through the African wilds and the Amazon basin as much by a scientific itch as by his love of adventure? Do you believe that my friend, the late Harry Hawker, attempted to fly across the Atlantic so much from an uncontrollable urge to demonstrate the feasibility of transoceanic air travel as from an exuberance of youthful spirit? Neither do I. Of course, these people all had at least an excuse, whereas we hadn't even a scientific shoestring, except possibly the vindication of our ideas about the seaworthiness of small vessels. But why have any excuse? To be sure, it is always desirable to have an objective, especially when one is asking for several months' leave, and we seized upon the British international races for this purpose. Why not sail across and cover them for the magazine? The races were scheduled to start on the afternoon of the 10th of August, and in order to reach cows in time, we planned to start on the 1st of July. But, as always with a new boat, Typhoon was not finished in time. In fact, she was launched three days after the date set for our departure, and it was not until the 18th of July that we actually set off. There seemed but one chance in a hundred that we could make it, especially after the failure of our motor at the start, but we did make it, and that saved the cruise from becoming rather pointless in the eyes of those who require any further motive than the one to which I already have confessed. Many people who seem not to realize that size is the least important element in the seaworthiness of a vessel felt that in looping the Atlantic in so small a boat, we had taken too great a chance. The New York Tribune, for example, while it did run a bully full-page story about the cruise, for which we are duly appreciative, printed an editorial in which it praised the accomplishment as a feat of seamanship, but added that this sort of cruising is too dangerous to be considered sensible yachting, and hardly the sort of thing for American yachtsmen to emulate. Now, apart from the question of the risk involved, which is largely a matter of personal opinion, I feel that what American yachting needs is less common sense, less restrictions, less slide rules, and more sailing. As an example of what the ponderous technicians have done to yachting, take the situation of the Shamrock and the Resolute, lying at their moorings on a day set for the last race for the America's Cup, because they could not risk their gear in a brisk wholesale breeze. Contrast this with the picture of the crack Gloucester schooner Esperanto, and this year the Elsie, beating it down to Halifax to meet the pick of the Blue Nose fleet, a prayer in the heart of every man aboard that it would blow like hell. Isn't the latter picture more typical of what we should like our yacht racing to be? And is safety first going to become our national motto? However admirable this sentiment may be when applied to the ordinary, everyday pursuits of life, it has no place in the glossary of sport. If you apply such a limitation to yachting or to football or to mountain climbing, you will emasculate it into a pale, weak thing unworthy of the name of sport. And if the risk were to be taken out of our sports, we should defeat our own purpose, for no one would go in for them, at least not while rum running offers so much excitement, or sticking up a bank. I think it is reasonable to say that a country is only as big as its sports. In this day, when life is so very easy and safe and sane, and highly specialized and steam-heated, we need, more than ever we needed before, sports that are big and raw and, yes, dangerous. Not that we recommend taking chances with the Roaring Forties in the middle of November, 
or crossing the Atlantic on the 50th parallel at any time of year. This sort of yachting, I suppose, never will be popular. But I do hope that if there is any result from this book on the typhoon, it will be to inspire a confidence in the possibilities of the small yacht and instill in the youngsters an interest in the sea and a desire to explore our wonderful coastline in their own little ships. The following story covers the history of the typhoon from the time of her conception to the finish of her cruise a year later. I have kept the chapters in chronological order, pretty much as they appeared originally in the pages of Motorboat. If the discussion of the boat itself seems dry and uninteresting to those unfamiliar with the language of the sea, they are at liberty to skip the chapter entirely or wade through it with the help of the glossary in the back of the book. I have felt that the few stories of this kind that have been published in this country have been lacking in the more technical side of the subject and therefore unsatisfying to the yachting enthusiast. Why the American publisher should be so squeamish about technical detail in a book of fact when he will stand for any amount of it in the fiction of such writers as Kipling and Conrad and H.G. Wells is difficult to understand. It is primarily for the yachtsmen and for the youngsters, most of whom have an inherent love for boats, that this book has been written. But if the story proves of interest to a broader audience and helps to establish what Slocum and Voss and Blackburn and Day already have proved, that the size of a boat has little to do with its seaworthiness, well, then I shall feel that unjustifiable pride that comes when you take a kid to the circus to cover your own interest in the show and someone praises you for your magnanimity. Signed, WWN, New York City, October 1921. End of Section Zero